Hello and welcome. I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns with the WPFW News Team. This is Friday Evening Fireside, a long-form version of our Monday morning news program. We're bringing you three extended interviews from last Monday. Reporter Amara Evering discusses a Supreme Court case that could reframe LGBTQ rights and religious freedoms with civil rights champion Shelby Day. I talk Biden's proposals to shrink the racial wealth gap with urban policy expert Yona Freemark. And first up, WPFW News Director Askia Mohammed has a follow-up conversation with Phyllis Bennis, senior fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies, about the political future of Israel's longest-serving leader, Benjamin Netanyahu. A coalition of parties spanning Israel's ideological spectrum, but excluding Netanyahu, had agreed to form a government last week, to which Netanyahu has responded with distinctly Trumpian tactics. He has called his loss a fraud, and the country's security chief has issued a rare warning for the potential of January 6th-style mob violence. There appears to be a broad loathing which unites the very unlikely anti-Netanyahu coalition, according to Phyllis Bennis. They have one point of unity, which is get rid of Netanyahu. They have no other agreement. And that's why it's very unlikely that even if they manage to keep it together in time for a vote and keep the voters together in the Knesset, which will be next week, if they manage to do that, suddenly Netanyahu is then no longer prime minister and Bennett becomes the prime minister. Uh, but how long this so-called coalition would hold is a very dicey proposition. At best, they might be able to pass a budget. That, I think, is unlikely also, but that's probably the one thing they might be able to do. They will not even try to do anything else because they have no agreement. They have parties there that uh, believe that there should never be a Palestinian state, that Palestinians have basically no business being either in Israel or anywhere in what they would like to think of as the land of Israel. Um, they have one of the Palestinian parties. Uh, it's an Islamist tending party. Uh, how long they last is very unclear. Uh, and they have a number of far right-wing parties. Bennett is there with only seven members uh, of his far-right religious party, but he has been able to play kingmaker and put himself in the position of being the first uh, prime minister if they take office. But, you know, I think what's more important, Askia, in this is less the logistics of whether this coalition will hold, etc., and more, will this make any difference either in terms of Palestinian lives or in terms of relations with the U.S.? those two things being rather tied up with each other. And I think the answer is no to the first. Uh, there is not going to be any change in, in Israel's position towards Palestinians living under military occupation in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, Palestinians living under military siege in Gaza, Palestinians living as second and third class citizens within the, the 48 uh, borders of Israel and the five million Palestinian refugees that will still not be able to come home. So I don't anticipate any change in the lives of Palestinians. There could be a change slightly in relations with the U.S. Ironically, Netanyahu has, of course, over the years positioned himself as the one who can deliver, the only one who can really deliver uh, continued U.S. uncritical support, U.S. protection from any accountability, U.S. military aid to the tune of $3.8 billion a year to start with, and then we go back and ask for more, as they are about to do either today or tomorrow. They're going to be asking for another billion dollars this year to replace uh, armaments that were used against Gaza last month, and that he's the only one he claims who can guarantee that. In fact, as it turns out, he has become 
far less popular recently as the criticisms of Israel have emerged beyond social movements and civil society and moved right into the halls of Congress and the uh, uh, in and around the White House, including 500 members of of um, Biden's earlier candidate uh, of his campaign, 500 campaign workers who signed an open letter um, speaking of Israeli depredations against the Palestinians. So all of that has changed the position of Netanyahu in Washington. And it may be that some in the White House and in Congress who are looking for ways to look like they are taking seriously the growing opposition to Israeli assaults on on Palestinians uh, without really changing their position could do so by saying, look, we, the bad guy's gone. Netanyahu's gone. We don't have to worry about him anymore. There's a new prime minister. It's a new beginning. Let's start again. Not acknowledging that this new prime minister is actually significantly to the right of Netanyahu. So all of that could happen. I don't think any of it is going to lead to any change and, and certainly not to any improvement of life for Palestinians. So what is it that makes Netanyahu such an ogre in the eyes of so many people? I think it's a number of things. I think in Israel, there's a lot of, and it's increasing, it's growing, uh, frustration with his staying in power so long, even as he is ostensibly on trial for a host of corruption charges. Uh, and there's a sense that is, I think, among more and more people there and here as well, that he is doing anything possible to stay in power, not because he thinks he's the best leader for Israel, but because as soon as he's not in power, there's a very good chance he could end up in prison. So this is all about staying out of jail for him. This is very personal. And I think that there's a danger, you know, he's shown himself over the years to be willing to do virtually anything to stay in power. And now with the threat of going to prison looming over his head, that's even stronger. And I think that along with whatever kinds of pressures he brings to bear on uh, members of the Knesset, who right now are saying they will vote against him, to try and persuade them, threaten them, bribe them, whatever it takes to get them to not vote against him, I think people should also keep an eye on the the borders of, uh, of Netanyahu's usual foreign policy targets, meaning Gaza, meaning Lebanon, meaning Iran. Uh, if he tries to move in a way that would provoke uh, an armed response from any of those so-called enemies of his, um, because he would like to believe that when Israel is at war, nobody wants to change the leadership, nobody wants to get rid of the leading Mr. Security, which is how he has positioned himself. That didn't work well enough for him last month, it seems. He didn't get the kind of uh, renewed levels of support, of, pu- of public and political support that he expected. So I think, you know, that's something that we should all be keeping an eye on in this next week in particular. Is there anything on the horizon that speaks to a better life for Palestinians, a real peace agreement anywhere in the picture? Yes. Ironically enough, I think there is reason for optimism, but it's not immediate. It's not short term uh, on the ground. The longer, the mid, midterm and long term uh, positive part, I think, is what we're seeing in this country. The extraordinary shift in the discourse that's been underway for 20 years and, and really very visible for the last couple of years. And in the last month or the last six weeks, with the crisis in Sheikh Jarrah, the, the, the effort to evict Palestinian families that have lived now for three generations in their homes to allow Israeli settlers to simply take over the community, the assault on, uh, on Palestinian worshipers at Al-Aqsa Mosque, and most especially this 11-day assault with no, no let-up, no respite, uh, leading to the deaths of, I think the total is now over 100, uh, over 260 Palestinians, 67 of them children, um, 12 people died in Israel, of which half were Israelis. Uh, but, you know, this has been a horrific 
months, a, a horrific six weeks. And in the United States, we've seen things we've never seen before, levels of opposition from unexpected quarters. You know, we now have certainly members of, co- of, co- of Congress who are real champions of Palestinian rights. And beyond that, what's in some ways even more important, we're seeing from more centrist members of Congress and members who are progressive on most issues but have been very hesitant on Palestine. And we saw a letter from 12 Jewish members of the House of Representatives calling on Biden for an immediate ceasefire, urging him to demand an immediate ceasefire at the moment when he was refusing to call for a ceasefire. That's never happened before. 29 senators calling for an immediate ceasefire when their president was refusing to do so. 500 uh, former staffers from Biden's campaign uh, campaign months who were, you know, his people wrote this scathing letter uh, exposing Israeli violations of international law. The use of the term apartheid is on the rise everywhere. The fact that mainstream human rights organizations like Human Rights Watch, like B'Tselem in Israel, the, the most well-known uh, internationally of all of the Israeli human rights groups, are now issuing major reports showing precisely why the term apartheid is the appropriate term. All of these things together mean that the uncritical uh, the, the uncritical support for Israel that has characterized U.S. foreign policy under both parties, all presidents, all congresses, all of that, for so many decades now, is no longer something that can be taken for granted. It's not going to disappear overnight, and it's not going to disappear on its own. But the public discourse is changing so dramatically that people in power and people close to power are recognizing the need to respond in some way to that shift in public opinion. And once that public opinion is recognized to to have shifted in that way, it's going to quickly become much more difficult. You know, we're we're at a at a point, we have been at a point for a couple of years now, where there's widespread recognition outside of Washington that it is no longer political suicide to criticize Israel, if it ever was. Now we're getting closer to a point, we're not there yet, but we're getting closer to the point where it will be some version of political suicide not to criticize Israel. That's what we're moving towards. And once we get there, it's going to become much harder. Phyllis Bennett, senior fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies. Thank you for shedding light on this complex question for us. Thank you, Eskia. That was Phyllis Bennis, Senior Fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies, in conversation with News Director Askia Muhammad. Don't forget, you can follow our news team on Twitter at WPFWMMQB, or follow the station itself at WPFWDC. Visit WPFW.org to listen live and to become a sustainer of listener-supported radio in the nation's capital. Next up, I address a complex series of proposals from the Biden administration aimed at shrinking the racial wealth gap. The plans include boosting entrepreneurial opportunities, transforming infrastructure, and improving home ownership gaps. Many progressives have also called for student loan debt forgiveness as part of any anti-racist plan, and many have advocated for a wealth tax and reparations to facilitate the redistribution of wealth. I sit down with Yona Freemark, Senior Research Associate at the Urban Institute, to talk about the infrastructure and home ownership components of Biden's plans. So, 
to start with a bit of history and our listeners tend to be politically active and historically knowledgeable. And so I think they're aware of the use of highways uh, to split communities of color, in some cases, destroy portions of them. But I just want to give our listeners a sense of the scope and scale of that problem. So if you take a minute just to talk about how how widely impactful is this practice of, of using highways to split communities? And maybe secondarily, is it regionally concentrated in any way? Well, so in the post-war period, the US invested in the interstate highway program, which we're all very familiar with. Most of us use it on a daily or weekly basis just to get around. But the interstate highway system had some negative consequences. And one of those was going directly into city centers. And to do that, those highways had to tear up existing communities. Now, anytime you drive into a city in, in the US, the route of the highway almost definitely required the uh, disposition of homes, the evacuation of people from communities, the destruction of businesses and parks and churches. That happened in almost every city in the United States, even relatively small places. There were uh, just a few communities like Washington, D.C., that were able to avoid massive destruction because there were protests at the time. But most other communities throughout the country saw huge tracts of land just taken away from them. And that often meant destroying communities of color and communities where low-income people live. So just to give you an example, in the city of Chicago, the Eisenhower Expressway that runs west from downtown uh, destroyed a number of communities that were Black, Jewish, and uh, Hispanic. And those communities were vibrant. They were filled with shops and, and uh, you know, local retail. They were filled with businesses and, and residences, and those were just destroyed for the community, uh, for the construction of the highway. Um, this meant you know, displacement of thousands of people. And that was just a common story that we saw in cities all over the country. And Biden seeks to redress this issue in, as part of his proposal to address the racial wealth gap. In the announcement of these, these plans, the White House mentions a highway to boulevards movement that it seems some localities have uh, been excited about, right? which promises to replace some of these highways with more accessible urban streets, um, which sounds great. And I'm wondering what some of the both technical and socioeconomic uh, challenges and benefits are of reconnecting communities in, the, in this way? Yeah, so the general idea behind reconnecting communities is that right now, literally, physically, highways separate communities. They run in the middle of neighborhoods that have existed for many decades before the highways were ever built. And the idea is if you replace the highway, which could be elevated, it could be at grade or could be sort of below grade, with a surface level street with fewer lanes and that allows a lot of connections between the different neighborhoods around it, you could perhaps allow people easier movement around their neighborhoods. You could reduce the air pollution that people are breathing in because there would be fewer cars on the road. And you could open up new space to do things like build new affordable housing buildings, build new parks, uh, create new public transportation uh, provisions. This is a concept that a lot of communities around the country have thought about, but not many communities have actually implemented. So San Francisco is an example of a place where there used to be a highway along the bay called the Embarcadero, and that highway was just partially destroyed as, as a result of an earthquake. And the result was the city essentially decided not to rebuild the highway, but instead to create a surface level boulevard with a light rail line, and you know, wonderful access for pedestrians and bikers. And that's been very successful in revitalizing all the communities along that route. That's the example I think a lot of communities are looking for, but there are some fundamental issues that communities are going to run into. The first is that it's expensive. You can't just take down a highway and rebuild it with new amenities for free. It will cost you know, dozens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars every time you want to do it. The second problem is that right now, in many cases around the country, hundreds of thousands of people driving rely on those highways every day to get to work. And so making sure that we provide people alternatives like good public transportation access or better bike access uh, certainly will require an additional investment. So there's nothing cheap or easy about this type of proposition. 
Yeah, just as a follow-up, it seems like a big reason that suburban communities are connected to urban centers are because of highways. Is there a clear way to ensure that suburban communities remain connected to urban centers um, during this process of transitioning highways into more urban accessible streets? You know, the reality is that much of the United States was built based on the interstate highway system. So when the US government decided to invest in this massive structure of interstate highways running out of downtowns into the countryside, essentially, it was subsidizing the construction of what we now see as our suburbs all around our, our cities. And that's a phenomenon that exists in almost every metropolitan area around the country. The idea is literally that we've built new cul-de-sacs, new strip malls, new office parks that feed into those highway systems and are reliant on them today. So if we were to remove the highways, I can imagine a few different potential outcomes. One is very little change. If there are places where there are existing, you know, public transportation provisions to get into downtowns, places like our major cities, Chicago, New York, Washington, actually getting rid of a highway won't change the access to those downtown areas very much. In fact, in a lot of downtowns in our, in our country, the majority of people do not drive to work. They use other means to get there. So uh, getting rid of the highways in those areas will not necessarily change that level of access. But in other communities, we don't have as good access to public transportation or other options to get to work. And getting rid of the highway might result in fewer people driving. But that could actually have some positive attributes as well. You know, that fewer rates of driving means less carbon emissions, which is good for our environment, less air particulates, which is good for people's lungs. And it could mean more people taking advantage of existing and future public transportation. So. I think that you know there will be required to be a certain mentality change and change in the choices people make on the ground, but there will ultimately be a lot more benefits to the cities that see this type of change than there will be uh, costs. Sure. In addition to uh, transportation infrastructure, Biden also takes, takes direct aim at homeownership issues to address the racial wealth gap. Um, and before we get into these particular solutions that Biden mentions, I just want to give you a couple minutes to talk about uh, the role that homeownership gaps play in the broader racial wealth gap. How much of that wealth gap is attributable to homeownership? And maybe in the last 10, 20 years, have we seen positive or negative trends in that homeownership gap? Yeah, so uh, equity in one's home is actually the biggest component of wealth for most low, moderate, and middle-income people who have ownership of a home, right? Most people in that income range don't have very much money in stocks, bonds, that kind of thing on, on Wall Street. They have most of their equity in the home that they own themselves. Now, the reality is that white families in this country have benefited from a number of things that have allowed them to amass more home wealth than Black, Hispanic, and often Asian families have. And those, those have included a history of systemic racism that was encoded in the law until 1968, systemic racism that is not encoded in the law, but is nonetheless enforced by developers, real estate agents, and people like that who use discriminatory uh, policies, essentially, to prevent Black people from buying in certain neighborhoods. We have generational wealth that is passed on from white people uh, from generations ago that have, you know, continued to perpetrate inequality today. And so when you put all those things together, you end up with this major gap in not only wealth between Black and white families especially, but also homeownership, which is, in essence, a illustration, a manifestation of that wealth. And so in communities all throughout the country, in every single metropolitan area, white people have higher rates of homeownership than black families. And you know, this has some major consequences. It means that black families are more likely to be exposed to eviction or in renting. It means that black families are unable to build their wealth through the advantages of homeownership. In a uh, study of the Twin Cities, Minnesota, that I'm currently leading, we found that the homeownership gap between white and black families has increased over the last 20 years, unfortunately, despite the fact that there's been a lot of talk about the importance of equity. 
And so now the homeownership gap between these two groups is, is about 50 points, which means that white families in that, in that region, about 70% of them own their home. Black families, about 20% of them own their home. And that racial gap is going to perpetuate itself by further reinforcing racial inequalities over time because people will pass on the wealth they've generated to their kids. And so we need to find ways to help close that gap and to help encourage um, black ownership and other forms of wealth creation. You mentioned discriminatory, uh, not just laws, but also sort of private uh, uh, developers and such. And I definitely wanna to get to that, but, but first I wanna talk about gentrification, which uh, Biden explicitly mentioned in his plans, which I think was welcome for a lot of local activists, I, I can say for sure in DC where gentrification has been a large issue. And specifically Biden is saying that uh, for uh, homes that receive funding to redevelop, to, to improve the quality of that housing, uh, there are certain provisions that limit the resale value of that home and limit the income of prospective buyers of that home. I think with the intention of ensuring that long-term residents of that neighborhood don't get priced out of redeveloped and improved homes, uh, which on its face seems like an appropriate policy, but in, in your expertise, have these kinds of anti-gentrification provisions been successful in the past? And if not, what could other effective anti-gentrification policies be? I think the first thing to note is that in America as a whole, gentrification is a problem, but honestly, the bigger problem is concentration of poverty and low-income uh, concentration. And that essentially means that we have many more neighborhoods in this country where poverty rates have gone up and where people don't have good access to good services, they don't have good access to jobs, then we have areas where gentrification is occurring. So we need to make sure that we're addressing both of those issues. We really need to make sure that we are finding ways to help people get out of poverty and that we are focusing on neighborhoods that experience high levels of poverty because that's where we have you know, people experiencing the worst conditions. Now, that said, there are many neighborhoods in communities throughout the specifically wealthiest parts of our country that have experienced significant gentrification over the last 20 years or so. So Washington, D.C. is actually the epicenter of that gentrification, which has been very racialized in its composition. You know, it's occurred through neighborhoods transitioning from lower income black families into increasingly higher income white families uh, specifically. This is also occurring in places like San Francisco, Seattle, New York City, Boston, where uh, housing is really expensive. So in those communities where gentrification is occurring, we need to develop strategies that effectively allow people who want to stay in those places to continue to stay there and to be able to do so in an affordable way. I'm not entirely sure that the federal government is going to be very effective in doing this, simply because of the fact that most of these policies need to be undertaken at the local level because they are very spatially localized. Gentrification is, is something that does not occur everywhere. It occurs in very specific places. And so you can imagine the uh, national administration, the, the federal government, developing strategies to help local communities implement policies that can help people stay in place. So some examples of that are rent stabilization policies that say that if you're in a community already, you should be able to stay there and not be subject to massive increases in rent. It also could look like additional funding for affordable housing focused on areas that are experiencing gentrification. So that could be like federal government money that is passed on to local governments. Um, or it could mean additional support for people who want to buy homes but have relatively low incomes, additional support to give them equity to be able to invest in neighborhoods that are gentrified. So, that would require, again, national support, perhaps, but local implementation. Sure, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Biden, the Biden plan also creates a $5 billion grant program with the aim of combating exclusionary zoning, which we had talked about a little bit. And it's not clear to me in this White House announcement how the federal government intends to dole out that funding but I'm curious, you know, you've spent a lot of time in, in, this, in this area. If Biden gave you $5 billion to address this problem of exclusionary zoning, um, how would you spend that money to incentivize more inclusionary zoning? Yeah, so inclusionary zoning is the 
type of land use regulation that essentially says that in many parts of the country, especially suburban and exurban areas, you can only build single family homes. And in a lot of metropolitan areas across the country, that means that those areas are essentially off limits to people with lower incomes and people of color who don't have the means to be able to invest in a single family home. And so opening up those communities, allowing them to uh, you know, require the construction of apartments, uh, allow people to use housing choice vouchers if you are of a lower income to be able to actually rent in a type of housing unit that is more expensive is very important as a national policy to make sure that people can live where they want to live. Now, as you said, the Biden administration has said that it wants to combat exclusionary zoning through a discretionary competitive grant program. And the contours of that program have not been established by the Biden folks. But what has been discussed in Congress so far has been primarily uh, what you might call carrots. In other words, you might give a community a little extra money that they can use for what they want if they change their zoning, for example, to allow apartments and not just single family homes. My biggest concern with that approach of using carrots only is that it does not actually do much to encourage communities that are wealthy to change their policies because the wealthiest communities are not really going to be that interested by a small grant amount they can get from the federal government. They're able to pay for their public services just using the money that they collect from their wealthy inhabitants who live in single family homes. So my perspective is that we need to make sure that there is, in addition to those carrots, that there are some sticks. That we say it is unacceptable to have communities in this country that exclude people of color, that exclude low-income people. And we need to develop land use regulations that allow those people into our communities so that we have more diversity and more equality. So I hope that the Congress is able to work towards that goal and develop both carrots and sticks in you know, the way it moves forward in this type of anti-exclusionary zoning policy. Sure. Lastly, Biden's plans to reduce the racial wealth gap obviously includes some entrepreneurial aspects and there's debate also around student loan forgiveness but absent those issues, just focusing on the infrastructure and home ownership aspects, if these were implemented, should we expect a, a shrinking of the racial wealth gap in the near term, or will this have to wait generations to take effect? I think it absolutely depends on the specifics of the policy in terms of whether the racial wealth gap will change in the coming years. I think we are facing a systemic racialized wealth difference that is very difficult to overcome with any individual policy, right? I mean, there are generational outcomes that are likely to be perpetuated in the coming generations just because of the way wealth is distributed today, which is one of the reasons why some elected officials like Elizabeth Warren have suggested that maybe a wealth tax and others have suggested that maybe reparations for slavery are necessary. That would directly address the vast inequities in wealth that exist in our country today and do so relatively rapidly. The infrastructure and housing elements of the Biden plan could even so play an important role in encouraging a pathway towards reducing the wealth gap. And here are some ways that that could occur. So one would be increasing access to jobs for people throughout communities. Right now we have a transportation system that is incredibly reliant on cars and that penalizes people who are lower income who don't have access to cars. If, the, if we pursue the Biden infrastructure plan, which is to invest much more in public transportation, in walking and biking, then we will be opening up more opportunities for people who rely on those alternatives to the automobile. And that should be indirectly a pathway to increase opportunity, increase access to jobs for people of lower income. So that is one way of reducing the wealth gap. Another is by creating new opportunities to live in places where there's better access to opportunity. An example of that would be the Biden proposal to expand the number of people who have access to housing choice vouchers, which is a mechanism by which people can rent in communities that might be a little too expensive for them. It means that more low-income people 
can go out and find an opportunity to rent an apartment or a house in an area that might be closer to a job they're looking for. And so when you put that together with the broader plan, I think you could end up with some significant reduction in the wealth gap just by giving people more opportunity and more access to different types of neighborhoods. So in short, it's sort of like Biden's plan and others like it could lift the floor, but not necessarily bring the ceiling down without a, a wealth tax or something similar? Well, it's very unclear what the tax element of the infrastructure plan will be. I think we don't know enough about um, the tax consequences of, of any policy at the moment, specifically because the Biden administration has been negotiating with the Republicans in the Senate, and the Republicans in the Senate have said that they're very much opposed to, for example, increasing taxes on income of high earners. It's unclear whether the Biden administration will try to pursue such a tax increase uh, with Democratic votes alone. So we'll definitely have to see about that. That would be one way to sort of redistribute down from the top. But most of the Biden policies enumerated in the plan in terms of programs would be coming from the bottom, bottom up, saying that we need to invest in uh, policies related to transportation and housing, especially that can really offer new opportunities for people of lower income. For this evening's final conversation, reporter Amara Evering talks with Shelby Day, chief policy officer at the organization Family Equality, about the Supreme Court case Fulton v. City of Philadelphia. This case encompasses common modern challenges to LGBTQ rights, as well as struggles that LGBTQ youth face in our already flawed child welfare system. start off by uh, you talking about what this case is, um, Fulton versus the city of Philadelphia. Yes, if you don't mind, I would, I would like to first just thank you for the opportunity um, to come on today's show and to talk with you about this case and other LGBTQ issues. And I just wanted to introduce myself really quickly. I'm Shelby Day. I'm the chief uh, policy officer at Family Equality, and we're a national organization exclusively dedicated to securing justice and equality for LGBTQ parents and their children by advancing legal and lived equality for all families. Um, pertinent to what we're going to talk about shortly, this work also um, includes um, supporting and advocating on behalf of LGBTQ youth, including foster youth seeking family formation. Um, and I can, I can jump right in um, to kind of get at the heart of the case, uh, and then I can provide you some background uh, information if you'd like. I don't know how deep you want to go into the background of the case, but um, at its heart, this is in this case, Catholic Social Services, which is a taxpayer funded foster care agency in Philadelphia, is claiming uh, in a case currently before the US Supreme Court that it has a constitutional right to exclude families based on its religious beliefs. Specifically, it's unwilling to license same sex couples as foster parents. Now, I'd like to point out that like many cities and states, the city of Philadelphia contracts with private agencies uh, to provide the foster care services for kids in government care. And that's what's going on here. And like many cities and states, Philadelphia prohibits all such agencies from discriminating against potential foster and adoptive parents um, for reasons based on um, their sexual orientation or other characteristics that are completely unrelated uh, to their ability to care for a child. Um, and these policies are designed to help ensure that kids who've been removed from their homes and placed in government care have access to every available qualified family who's available, ready, and willing to care for them. And here, see, um, Catholic Social Services claims that it should be exempt from these non-discrimination provisions that apply to all contractors and should be essentially given a license to discriminate uh, based on sexual orientation, even though it's receiving taxpayer funding to do the government's work. And, you know, going off of the significance of using taxpayer money, um, can you talk about um, what are the broader implications of um, this case and the use sure. of federal money? 
Sure. Well, I guess first and foremost, what I would like to point out, if it's okay, is as I think the first reason this case is significant is there's a crisis in the child welfare system. Um, there are currently over 420,000 youth in foster care across the country. Uh, 120 of those uh, are of those children are waiting to be adopted. Um, and there's a shortage of homes to place them in. And Unfortunately, heartbreakingly, over 20,000 kids a year age off foster care without being provided a family and a support system. And here, same-sex couples represent across the country a large pool of interested and qualified foster and adoptive families. Same-sex couples are seven times more likely than different sex couples to foster or adopt. And historically, gay men and lesbians have been more willing to adopt harder to place kids, such as older kids and those with special needs. And so when you're talking about an agency like Catholic Social Services turning away qualified parents because they're LGBTQ, it reduces the size of the pool of available families for kids who need homes. And there's already a shortage. It also decreases the diversity within that pool. Um, of available homes for affirming placements for kids in care. You know, kids don't get to, kids who are in child welfare don't get to decide which agency they work with. And so uh, agencies should be putting the best interests of kids first and um, licensing all qualified families. And that's really what the city of Philadelphia is asking it to do here. Um, and the implications of what uh, Catholic Social Services is asking for, which is a license to discriminate, um, would allow it to take taxpayer funded or take taxpayer funding, excuse me, um, and then turn away qualified families. And that's just not um, that's not what the city of Philadelphia um, requires of its contractors, of all contractors, and it's not what the court should be granting here. And so I know that um, people on kind of the other side have used a similar argument about, um, you know, prioritizing children. So I just want to read you a quote from a New York Times opinion article um, from Tony, Tony Sims Bush, who was involved in this case. Okay. Um, she said, quote, their ministry, the Catholic Social Services, is under attack from Philadelphia authorities and activists who would rather see children suffer than allow religious charities live out their beliefs. So how would you respond to this? Sure. Um, well, I want to be clear first and foremost that um, faith-based agencies do wonderful work. I don't want to set them up as the bad guy here. Um, because they're not. What we know from experience and statistics is that most, most faith-based agencies don't discriminate, um, and most people of faith don't support discrimination by taxpayer-funded child welfare agencies. Um, in fact, the Network Lobby for Catholic Social Justice um, and Ben the, Jar ben the Ark Jewish Action um, both have um, come out directly in support of um, the city of Philadelphia and the interveners in this case, um, they support non-discrimination provisions. Um, they support those being um, enforced against taxpayer-funded faith-based agencies. Um, you know, and what they're saying is that this isn't really about religious freedom. It's about granting taxpayer-funded agencies who voluntarily sign up to do this work to license to discriminate and turn families away. And it's not just LGBTQ families that end up being discriminated against. It's also religious minority families and any other families potentially that don't, that don't meet a religious agency's uh, religious criteria or litmus test. It's a very dangerous standard uh, to set and it hurts families. There's never been a shortage of, uh, of agencies uh, to do this work, but there has historically always been a shortage of families and it's the kids in care who ultimately are hurt. Um, I would like to, to point out um, our role, family equality's role in this case, I think really highlights that issue. We submitted uh, an amicus brief, a friend of the court brief. Um, and in that we used the voices of LGBTQ people who had sought to foster and adopt and had been turned away because of discrimination. And what it, what it highlights is and demonstrates is the harms of discrimination fall on the backs of kids who need loving homes. We shared real life stories of loving qualified parents 
who were turned away for no reason other than their sexual orientation, and they were prevented from um, altogether. They were delayed or deterred. And two specific real life examples um, to me that just really get at the heart of what's at stake and the real harm here are one same sex couple that we highlight in our brief who expressed uh, interest in, um, in fostering and adopting a nine year old boy who was in care and who was available. They were turned away because they're a same sex couple. And um, it really kind of hit them in the heart and they continued to worry about and think about that child and wonder what happened to him. And up until the, the time that we filed our brief, which was five years later, that same boy was still in the child welfare system. So then he was a 15 or a 14 year old boy, excuse me, who was still listed as available for adoption. And what they asked is, you know, does that child even know there was a family who wanted him? And it's just heartbreaking to think about that. We also highlighted at least two other families who were willing to foster to adopt a sibling group. Um, and uh, both of those siblings were older in age. So categorically harder to place and harder to place together. And they were turned away, kept apart, and the children remained in the system as far as they know. And those are things that don't have to happen and that shouldn't be happening. As long as there are kids in care who need homes, we should be allowing any qualified, willing, and able foster and adoptive family to serve as families for these kids. And that's what's at stake. And I know that your organization um, spoke to um, not only LGBTQ plus parents, but also some um, faith leaders. Is that correct? Uh, yes, we have a whole um, a whole network of faith leaders. Um, like I was saying, in, including um, Ben the Ark Jewish Action has has um, long been a partner of ours in this work. Uh, the Network Lobby for Catholic Social Justice, um, their new executive director, Mary Novak, has spoken out um, um, both in the Fulton case um, and in support of our signature legislation, the John Lewis Every Child Deserves a Family Act, which directly gets at the heart of this issue and was reintroduced last week in Congress. And then we have a, a network of uh, hundreds of faith-based providers who are speaking out against this kind of discrimination, saying we do not want to discriminate um, and we do not support taxpayer-funded faith-based agencies being allowed to discriminate. It's the kids whose best interests should be being placed first. And do they relate um, some of the, um, their stance to their faith? Um, is it, is, does their faith influence um, how they feel about this case, the leaders that you have spoken to? Sure, I would definitely invite you to reach out specifically to, to Mary Novak um, or um, to, to the folks at Ben the Ark. Um, they, they both joined a press conference that we had on the John Lewis Every Child Deserves a Family Act last week. And that's available, I believe, on our website, which is www.familyequality.org. Um, and what they said is that this case is not about uh, religious freedom or free exercise of religion. It is about a taxpayer funded agency seeking to discriminate. They can have their religious beliefs. They can uh, follow in accordance with those religious beliefs, but it does not give them an, an exemption from generally applicable uh, neutral laws that are applied to everyone the same to perform government functions. And it's, it's dangerous to think um, here that the court would, would uh, side with um, Catholic social, social services and potentially grant um, a religious exemption to generally applicable laws for government contractors that would wreak havoc um, on government contracting. And just going back to um, the children and foster care, I know that there is a, of course, a portion of LGBTQ youth in foster care as well, um, who maybe uh, be able to be related to or um, might have a better time with foster, par um, foster parents that are also LGBTQ. So can you speak about that a little bit? I know your organization has um, worked with some of these youth as well. 
Yes, thank you so much for that question. Um, there are a disproportionate number of LGBTQ youth in the system, um, as many as, as 40%. Um, and um, we have uh, long worked with uh, former foster youth who are, many of whom are uh, LGBTQ youth who experienced uh, discrimination in the system, who experienced higher rates uh, themselves experienced. And also we know statistically they, they do experience higher rates of mistreatment, um, uh, uh, disrupted placement, multiple placements, aging out. Um, and, um, you know, many of them have stepped up and said, I just wanted an affirming family or had I had an affirming family uh, who just accepted me for who I was and let me be who I was and provided me a supportive and loving place, whether it was a temporary home or a permanent home, that's what I needed. Um, these Young people have already oftentimes suffered rejection, many times based on their sexual orientation and gender identity, have, explored, have experienced different forms of trauma, um, and they need loving, supportive placements. Um, we also had, um, in the lower court in this case, we also submitted an amicus brief, um, and it included um, also stories of um, young people formerly in foster care. And we had even non-LGBTQ youth, young people, um, who um, had spent time in the system and had li lived experience and said, I just wanted a family to love me. I don't care if it was one parent or two. I don't care uh, if it was um, you know, an LGBTQ person or a straight person. I just wanted a family. And some of these are kids who aged out of the system, who missed out. Um, I, again, from our press conference, I, I would... Um, uh, strongly um, suggest anybody who's interested looking at our website and viewing that there's a young person with lived experience, um, Weston Charles Gallo, who also recently testified before Congress uh, in favor of the John Lewis Every Child Deserves a Family Act. And he talks about his lived experience. He talks about uh, the trauma he suffered in the child welfare system and how um, his two gay dads who brought him into a family um, as an older youth um, and all of a sudden he had six siblings basically saved his life, that he was on the verge of, of suicide. Um, he was really suffering the ills that many young people, especially LGBTQ young people in the system face, and it saved his life. And so it's this kind of lived experience that we should be listening to and, and, and looking at here. Well, I didn't know that at all. So, you know, thank you for sharing that with me. Yeah. Um, and just kind of talking about the broader civil rights um, implications of this case. So I know that the, um, the ruling of Employment Division versus Smith um, is also relevant um, to this case. So can you talk a little bit about the general civil rights implications um, of, you know, if they side with the um, Catholic um, social services? Sure, sure. So, I mean, what's at stake here is, of course, we're hopeful that the, the Supreme Court, which will issue its opinion sometime this month in June before the end of its um, current session, we hope they'll do the right thing and affirm the lower court decisions um, and reject social, Catholic social services um, requests for a license to discriminate and providing taxpayer funded child welfare services. A ruling in favor of Philadelphia would affirm that state and local governments can establish and enforce non-discrimination requirements and ensure that a, there's a larger, more diverse pool of uh, foster and adoptive parents. If the court rules in favor of Catholic social services, which I know that's specifically what you were asking about, the implications really can range from very narrow, uh, applying specifically to this case, to something much, much more broad. So for instance, a narrow ruling, the court could find that um, deficiency in this specific contract or these specific circumstances, and that would be limited to this case. Um, and um, you know, certainly that's what we would be um, hoping for in a law scenario, something very narrow. Um, a, a more broad ruling in favor of Catholic social services as they're requesting could have dire consequences for foster youth. It would reduce the number of available homes, could block kinship placements. So a child being placed with a relative who's LGBTQ or 
single or other a member of a religious minority. Um, and it could potentially allow agencies to discriminate against LGBTQ and religious minority youth directly in care. So those youth we are talking about who already experience higher rates of discrimination um, and a higher number of placements and higher number of aging out, it could actually allow them to directly discriminate based on their sexual orientation, gender identity, or uh, religious status. Um, a broader ruling could even go beyond the child welfare context and allow discrimination in other government contracted public services, such as job training programs, food assistance, emergency shelters, healthcare services, early childhood education, and more. And a broad ruling in favor, kind of the one of the broader rulings of uh, in favor of Catholic social services could as I mentioned earlier, wreak havoc on government contracting, allowing religious entities to enter into contracts with the government, but then refuse to comply with parts of the contract that they don't like. So this could range everything from, um, you know, the more sort of the kinds of providers we're talking about here to even military contractors. So we're talking about faith-based agencies or others saying, well, I'm not going to comply with this because it conflicts with my religious belief. Um, and so I know earlier you were asking about um, employment division versus Smith, and that's a case that's you know, potentially um, at issue here. And that's a, a case that was decided in 1990, an opinion that was written by the late uh, uh, Justice Anton Scalia, and really set the standard in this area um, concerning free exercise of a religion under the First Amendment. Um, so in that case, Justice Scalia found that religion doesn't automatically provide an, an exemption from a generally applicable law. And he created the test that's applied now that was applied here and upheld in the lower courts um, that government regulations must be neutral and generally applicable. And the lower court uh, here found, both lower courts found that the city's non-discrimination policy is a neutral, generally applicable law and that the religious views of Catholic social services don't entitle it to an exception from that policy. I think here what's really at stake with Smith is that, um, I mean, something that Justice Scalia warned of in, the in 1990 when he wrote the Smith opinion, and that was that um, these kinds of religious exemptions um, that was sought there that, that is sought in this case could open up the prospect of constitutionally required religious exemption from all kinds of civic, civic obligations. Um, and, and I'll quote him here, almost every kind of con every conceivable kind ranging from compulsory uh, military service to the payment of taxes, to health and safety regulations such as manslaughter and child neglect. So we're talking about, um, you know, a, a case that was, a, a, written by a conservative justice and set a, a, a very important standard for where um, kind of the bounds of free exercise of religion. We all have a First Amendment right to exercise our religion freely. And uh, this case does not inhibit um, that right. Uh, what, it's, what this case is about, again, is a taxpayer-funded agency voluntarily entering into a contract to provide government services on behalf of the government and it being held to the same requirements and standard as all other contractors. That's what's at stake here. And so, you know, as we kind of wrap things up, I don't want to keep you for too long, um, <laughs> but uh, I know that some people are like, well, if we, um, if we don't side with the CSS, then, um, all of these, uh, all of these foster care agencies that are led by um, faith groups that you know don't agree with this um, could close down, and that could put people in danger. And so, um, what is your response to that? And um, what if that happens? You know, what do you think should happen? You know, we should do in response to that? Um, sure. So, um, as I said earlier, what we know from experience is that most faith-based agencies don't want to discriminate. Most faith-based agencies 
um, are not in support of the kind of license to discriminate that Catholic social services is seeking. The problem has never been um, a lack of agencies to do the work on behalf of governments. The problem has always been the size of the pool and of available foster and adoptive parents. And where we have saw it, where we have seen in the, in the rare situations where um, a child welfare provider has decided to leave the system because of a non-discrimination provision um, or requirement, um, what we've seen is that um, agencies, other agencies step up and assume that work. And there is a continuity of care and sort of standards that are implemented to ensure that there aren't gaps in services, uh, either for the families or the children. And I think that um, that argument is directly addressed in a, um, in a front of the court brief that was filed in this case by several states who have non-discrimination provisions, who have who um, attested to in their states that non-discrimination provisions have have actually um, benefited the system and the agencies and the children working within that system. And, um, you know, they really speak exactly to the question that you raised and show that that is not the case and that it's not a valid concern, that the need for the non-discrimination provisions and the need for as big of a pool of foster and adoptive parents that we can have far outweighs um, the possibility of um, individual agencies choosing to leave the system because they're not allowed to discriminate with taxpayer funding. Thank you. And as a last question, sure. um, I just want to ask, um, do LGBTQ um, plus parents currently have access to, um, will have complete access to adoption in the U.S. Um, or are there barriers that people still face um, around the country? Um, well, adoption law generally is, um, is each state has its own laws um, and um, generally um, same-sex couples, um, post-marriage equality, same-sex couples um, are um, uh, able to um, adopt under all the states um, allow married couples to adopt, so same and individuals to adopt. And so couples are able to do that. Um, there are no state laws currently that um, prohibit LGBTQ people um, expressly from fostering and adopting. There are 11 states that um, have passed laws that um, allow taxpayer, most, most of the, the 11 states, I believe eight of the 11 states um, expressly allow taxpayer funded child welfare agencies to turn people away based on their religious criteria. Um, and there um, are um, more states and, and localities than that that actually prohibit discrimination like the city of Philadelphia. So it really varies from state to state, but generally LGBTQ people can um, foster and adopt both as married couples and in some cases as unmarried couples um, and certainly as individuals. Thank you so much. Do you have any uh, closing comments? Um, I don't. I really appreciate the opportunity um, and I would encourage people to go to our website to learn more about this case. Again, we're Family Equality and our website is www.familyequality.org. Um, I would encourage you to learn more about this case and then also our uh, signature leg legislation that uh, John Lewis, uh, Every Child Deserves a Family Act, which prohibits discrimination um, based on sexual orientation, gender identity, marital status, and religion in the child welfare context um, at each touch point. So that's families of origin, prospective foster and adoptive families, and uh, youth who are in care. Um, and Senator Gildebrand um, uh, is the Senate sponsor, and Congressman Danny Davis is the House sponsor. And I would encourage anyone who's listening to check out our website to learn more about that law and to call and ask that your senators and Congress people uh, co-sponsor that bill. That was Shelby Day, Chief Policy Officer at Family Equality, 
in conversation with reporter Amara Everine. That completes our 15th episode of Friday Evening Fireside. We are pausing these Friday broadcasts as the station works to build out additional HD streaming channels and will restart the podcast as a weekly hour-long feature then. But tune in this Monday at 11 a.m. for our regular weekly news hour, where we discuss civilian casualties of U.S. military operations, a commitment to reparations from the Virginia Theological Seminary, the G7 Summit continuing this weekend, and the dark reality of forced confessions in the U.S. justice system. For WPFW News, this is Chris Bangert-Drowns, signing off.